0: Hi, it's Cullen. Before we get started, I want to holla at you for just a minute. There are a few things I want to tell you regarding the show you're about to listen to. Number one, in our discussion of Cannibal Holocaust, I said a few times that the film's director, Ruggero Deodato learned under Antonioni. That is not correct. He learned under Roberto Rossellini, the other Italian auteur. Number two, uh, you're going to hear a lot of popping plosives in my microphone, not Todd's. Um, I was a little too far up on the mic when we recorded this. We have since uh, sorted out I think most of the recording uh, problems, and you should get better sound going forward. I don't think it happens enough to be annoying, but that's obviously going to be up to you. Uh, Also, on a personal note, I want to apologize for having almost nothing intelligent to say about the 400 blows. I think Todd's analysis makes up for it. Um, I will endeavor to correct this in the future. Okay? Okay. Enjoy episode three. Once again, and welcome to Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen. And I am Todd. And it is so nice to be speaking to you again. Technical difficulties sorted out for the time being. Uh, Todd sounding good in my ear. And Colin sounding lovely in my ear. Awesome. So, this is the podcast where we introduce each other to films from the. Um, worlds of cinema that we enjoy and the other one knows little about I make Todd watch a lowbrow crass film he makes me watch a highbrow artsy film and then we discuss them that's pretty much covers it that's about it alright so this this time around um, I have entreated forced uh, prevailed upon Todd to watch Ruggiero Deodato's 1980, I'll call it a masterpiece, Cannibal Holocaust.
1: Cannibal Holocaust, indeed, is what I was subjected to. Um, yeah, um, Quite an experience actually Quite an experience um, and, and I um, exposed Colin to uh, The 400 Blows which is the American Translation there's some discrepancy There but um,
0: Les quatre cents coups
1: Exactly I'll leave it to the man who can speak French um, by Well then
0: You need to get somebody who speaks French In here
1: <laughs> by, uh, by Truffaut who is uh, One of the Great forerunners of, of uh, The French New Wave which uh, I think, think he's one of those directors, Francois Truf- Truffaut. Uh, I think he's one of those directors that a lot of people have probably heard in passing and polite cafe conversations um, and um, may or may not be familiar with.
0: So, shall we get to. Shall we get to getting?
1: Let's get to getting.
0: All right, I have.
1: We have a film toss to do, don't we? Right.
0: One of your American pennies, worth approximately one cent. So one of my
1: American pennies. How does that play?
0: Um, you can have it if you want. You have to win it though. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Okay. Interesting question. Ready to go? All right. Uh, usually I have Todd call it in the air. Want to call it in the air? I All right, will here indeed. Here we go and flipping. Tails. Heads. It is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can look at it. The I heads. really. Oh, I trust you. I trust okay. you. Okay. I'm I'm starting to think. I think I've called Tails every time, and I'm pretty sure I've lost every time.
0: First time you called Buffalo.
1: (laughs) That's right. I did call Buffalo first time.
0: Which is Tails, so. Yeah, you might want to switch. You might want to. Well, no. No. Don't switch now. Gambler's fallacy. Right. Right? It really doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what you call. Exactly. we're going to discuss your artsy fucking film anyway.
1: And much better to stay consistent.
0: Earlier or later. Um... Okay, so I win. That means the first film on the docket is nineteen eighties Italian splatterpiece. Okay. Cannibal Holocaust. Take uh, it away.
1: I was very uh, interested in seeing uh what you were actually gonna call this film because like as I was watching it, um um the the concept of it being a horror film really never struck me. Um I mean there were a couple of elements that perhaps did. Um but let me go ahead and sum up the plot a little bit first. And and this film actually had quite the plot and um and even more than that, how it presented its plot um I feel like led up to um, quite a bit of um, repetition of, of of innovation in future films. That that there's a lot of techniques used in this film that have shown up in, in more modern films. But um so the basic gist is that um a film a young film crew of documentary filmmakers um, who basically seek out primal civilizations to do BBC-style, uh, I think they call it BPC, but it's BBC-style documentary films. And um, But it turns out that they actually are very manipulative about how they go about making their films. So they go out into the Amazon on this crazy wild mission, four of them, who make these radical documentary films, um, to basically find a cannibal tribe um, that they want to film and do a documentary on, um, but of course, once again, with their questionable ethics and their manipulative um, approach to documentary filmmaking, which was very interesting to me, um, seeing as I've taken documentary classes where we discussed exactly those matters. It was Uh very, very cool in that way. So so the crew goes out there. So there's almost two stories at play, um, or a story within a story. Um, So the film crew goes out and goes missing. At this point, an anthropologist is um, solicited to um, go back out into the Amazon with a guide to find out what happened to this film crew, um, to find out if they're still alive, to find out if uh, there's anything salvageable, um, basically just to find out what happened. Um, and he accepts the mission. So the actual story is the anthropologist searching for um, the film crew. But then there's the story within the story, which is the film crew, And their mission through the Amazon. And because we have all their found footage and we find their film reels, that we actually get to see that story as well. And it's done in pure documentary style. Um, The rest of the film is shot from the outside, as any other film would be. very typical 70s style. Sometimes there's maybe some tough time recognizing the stylistic approach in the documentary film versus the stylistic approach in the film itself, but usually it's pretty obvious. Um, usually the documentary is extremely rough, handheld, um, and they flip back and forth telling the story between the footage that the filmmakers have taken, that they found, and then the actual story of the anthropologist searching for the filmmakers. And then later... Um, deciding whether this footage should be turned into a documentary and aired for the public, um, especially after they see the, let's softly say, questionable um, techniques that the film crew used in making the film um, or getting the footage. And then the anthropologists being very against this documentary coming out while the studio execs are very for this documentary coming out. Um, and then finally, they watch all of the cut footage, which shows the actual approach that the film crew took to the Primal Tribe, um, which is relatively repulsive. Um, actually, just repulsive. <laughs> and, um, and then um, finally, they, they come to the conclusion that yes, this should not be released, but it makes it out anyway. That's pretty much the whole film, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I really do want to point out that structurally working the documentary footage into the larger paradigm of the narrative um, and how seamlessly they interwove the two was really, really brilliant, mm-hmm. actually. Like, like, kind of stunning.
0: Yeah, uh, we will... I agree. Uh, we'll, we can talk about that in a minute um, when we sort of uh, talk contextually about the influence that this film had. Um... my opening thoughts about this um, I'm really eager to hear whether I mean you just gave a very good explanation of it Um, I'm really eager to hear whether you liked it Um, I do not know there's no other film like this Um, it is obviously extremely infamous extremely controversial Uh, It is what separates, if I were being patriarchal, I would say this is the film that separates the men from the boys. Um, I can say it separates the grown-ups from the children. Uh, You could make a case, and many people have made a case, for this being the nastiest, most mean-spirited film ever made. Um, It really is an intense experience. I do, I am being honest when i say that it's a masterpiece extremely morally questionable but executed just really really brilliantly executed um the director ruggiero deodato is no hack uh he actually um he cut his teeth working with uh was it antonioni i think he was a protege of antonioni Um, and it shows in the realism that he's able to um, he's able to capture and portray on screen uh, but um, that's enough of me sort of grasping and groping for words about how affecting this film is uh, what did you think all right
1: interesting um uh, yeah I was actually very careful in my um, plot summary to try not to let on um, what I thought about the film because I know that you're anxiously waiting um, <laughs> to see uh, my, my brow up or my brow down. <laughs> um, I, first, I would like to respond to some of the things that you said. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think you referencing it as a masterpiece is, is more than justified. Um, and, and yes, the, the filmmaker, um, how do I pronounce his name again? Deodato. Deodato. Um, there is no doubt that he had some um, very fantastic filmmaking chops and that he had certainly um, studied and learned his craft um, through um, very legitimate filmmakers. Um, With that being said, I I would say that, and I think this was a popular critical response, but that there was some weak acting in it that was actually extremely forgivable because of the production um, techniques that he took. The the weak acting almost becomes secondary as well as it being a seventies film. You almost go in with certain expectations. Uh And so all of it relatively forgiven, um, But some of the acting definitely is a little weak, um, not so much in the documentary film part, um, as much as in the outside story, the professor himself, um, could be a little heavy handed, a little of the dialogues, a little heavy handed, um, because they deal with some pretty intense social themes here. Um, I mean, the, the movie has a very, a very viable, very legitimate social premise and, um, and Sometimes it's a little heavy-handed in the dialogue. Um, with that being said, the acting and some of the heavy-handed dialogue is the only thing that kept me... While I was saying that I was having questions about where to place this in, in, the, um, in, in the canon and, and in the genres, um, that minus, like I said, the weak acting and some of the heavy-handed dialogue... I actually would have put this more in my genre than your genre, oh. that I actually was watching this, <laughs> and with the production value, um, some of the techniques used, some of the experimental techniques used, the soundscape, and the use of the music score we are going to have to talk about at some point, because it was really fucked up sorry but (laughs) but i mean that in the best way possible like he could not have made me more uncomfortable and he did some of that they would juxtapose the imagery with the music which is something tarantino does modernly so everybody's familiar with that effect Uh that you play the music that's the exact opposite of what you would expect at the time so there's times there's almost like this romantic 70s montage music Mm -hmm. going over top of horribly gruesome imagery and it well the theme music so that plays
0: over the opening credits is really quite beautiful right
1: and they mm-hmm. bring it back at times throughout the film uh-huh. and usually bring it back at really horrifyingly grotesque times to where it's juxtaposed versus the image and uh-huh. then they'll leap right back into the horror film soundtrack that's got that driving bass with the kind of modern doo coming in yeah and they'll switch between those two and it's um I mean, you could call it chaotic if it weren't so perfectly orchestrated. And and it's certainly not traditional, but it, it was used beautifully. Mm. Um, some people could probably argue that the soundtrack was a little gratuitous. I totally disagree. I think they used it. Even, or if it was gratuitous, it was gratuitous in all the right
0: ways. I think anyone that's calling this film gratuitous is not going to be talking about the soundtrack. It's
1: <laughs> like, kind of funny because in those areas. All right, so, so let's get down to some of... Oh my gosh. Um there there are at least 5 to 6 animal killings on screen in this film. So yeah, and I And you I, did watch the uncut version? And I did watch the uncut. Which
0: amazingly is on Hulu Plus. Still kind of blows my mind that the entire uncut version is available on Hulu Plus, but those are the times we live in, I guess.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um okay, so so on that, obviously I have major issues with that as I think most people would um in modern times um i believe the director at some point did apologize for poor judgment in the future um and that the animals that were killed were used (laughs) i do believe they were eaten and used by the tribes that because he did use real tribesmen in his film um they really did shoot in the amazon um they it it was kind of a poor man's apocalypse now from what i can tell production wise and i think they took it every bit as seriously um so with that being said, obviously, that that was harsh to take, um, and if I had thought it was staged as opposed to real, it would have been easier. But um, this is one of the few films that I've ever watched that I really had to look away a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, shock cinema at its um, – I mean, it's hard to say, but at its finest, honestly. Um, it, um, there was no gore. There was no – no, um, yeah, there, there was nothing that would, that would allow you to leap out of it and say this is fake. Because right. it because it wasn't right, right, and, um, and no
0: then, uh, artistically rendered blood spray. No, yeah. But honestly,
1: God, this is so hard to admit. But with the animal slayings, they were insanely effective. Um, they left you horribly uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. There are times in this film that, once again, my number one rule: does it evoke emotion? Mm-hmm. Oh my God! By the end <laughs> of this film, I was holding myself, cringing. Um, thinking uncomfortable as hell um so certainly it, it it wins on that um on that gauge um but um so i i can't throw my approval to the animal slaughterings of course um however the imagery was very effective um as far as any of the discussion of how he portrayed the the tribes and and the primal people um i didn't find it any more offensive than what any other film does um i can see why that debate exists perhaps but honestly the overall premise i thought was quite the opposite um so when it comes down i feel like i'm rambling a lot because i really want to tell people first and foremost (laughs) to watch this film And, and and that's that's tough to say because it really is there are massive shock elements to it however it's a very viable film with a very viable purpose and in certain ways production value wise it's it's truly brilliant and like i said minus those two elements of the acting and the dialogue i feel like this film could have easily crossed over into the art cinema world and if anything may have gotten a better reception or i don't know um, I think it would have fallen into that canon, minus some of these um, controversial aspects of production. And But honestly, Apocalypse Now, they killed animals on screen in that as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and quite a few
1: other films that I can um,
0: bring up. Okay, so there are a lot of places to start with um, this film, giving it some context. Uh, probably as good a place as any to start is with the Italian exploitation film industry. Um, Italian cinema is a really interesting world. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast already with uh, Fellini. Um, and yeah, you know, Italian cinema has its share of auteurs, uh, Fellini and the aforementioned Antonioni, Rossellini, uh, Ravioli, <laughs>
1: You know the three bigs.
0: (laughs) Uh, I hope Italian listeners do not think I'm making fun of their of their names. Um, In all seriousness, uh, you know. Okay, so they did have uh, auteurs, but that's not where the money was made on the international film market. The money was made with this essentially what started as ripoffs of Western or American film genres the spaghetti western um there was lots of uh, science fiction rip-offs the the italians during the 60s and 70s and into the 80s but particularly the 70s is kind of like the golden era of italian exploitation they were really really good at copying um american as successful american films doing them much more cheaply and selling them on the international market um can I
1: ask you something? Yeah. Because what's really interesting to me is like you bringing up the exploit, the Italian exploitation, and then obviously I'm familiar with the spaghetti westerns and Sergio Leone, and um, the the interesting thing to me is that when we have these kind of chop shop films made in um, America, we get chop shop directors to make them. Uh huh. Um, these exploitation films seem to be made by men who easily, in another context. Would have been openly embraced as auteurs, mm-hmm. or, or as at least aspiring auteurs. Yeah, I mean, Sergio Leone. Yeah, I mean, massive filmmaking chops. This gentleman, massive filmmaking chops, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the equivalent on the American side, um, that you really just uh, kind of expect the low man on the totem pole at the studio to be thrown in this film <laughs> right, and say, right. do what you can. Right. You know?
0: Well, I think it has something to do with. Well, sorry, I didn't let you finish your question. Oh, no. but are you oh, asking, That, that
1: like, was kind of it.
0: It's, it's, asking why? it's the
1: crossover of the yeah. quality truly capable, visionary filmmakers making exploitation films.
0: I think it has something to do with the difference in American and European perspectives of genre. Mm. Um, in America, anything that, that falls into a genre is sort of, there's a bit of a stigma attached to it. And that's getting better because you have, you know, widely, widely recognized you know whatever you think about them and their excesses widely recognized masters of filmmaking like peter jackson people like that who are you know firmly rooted in genre but doing really really interesting things um there still is a bit of a stigma attached to it in europe that's not so um you know uh i remember hitchcock talking about In conversation with Truffaut, interestingly, as we'll get to later, talking about how he was making A movies in England, but when he came to America, everybody expected him to make B films. It was the same kind of film. It was just that Americans had less respect for the art form of the thriller. Interesting. Um, So, I mean, I think that's a big part of why there were... Masters of their craft in Italy, especially. I mean, Mario Bava, you know, and Dario Argento are usually considered to be the two titans of Italian horror films, and they definitely have reputations that go beyond the you know the bounds of that genre.
1: Within the the intellectual cinematic world, they're well respected directors, right? Oddly,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I really think it's a it's a public perception, but um, that's really um, interesting. Or maybe there was just a lot more filmmaking talent. <laughs> well, you know?
1: it also draws, to me, like, um, I was always intrigued by the idea that uh, film noir was, was brought out in America as a B- um, style film, right. um, it was re- never really intended to be anything but once uh-huh. again playing into that idea of Americans accepting thrillers as kind of a B genre, and um, and it was the first um, Hollywood cinema to ever be embraced by France as being high end, truly inno- <laughs> truly innovative, truly interesting, right. and and worth paying attention to, right. um, while Americans considered it B film.
0: Yeah. You know? and, so the Italian exploitation genre really or the Italian exploitation industry really did make most of their money off of these rip offs. There were Western rip offs, which eventually became its own art form of the spaghetti western. There were side science fiction ripoffs, lots of alien ripoffs, lots of Star Wars ripoffs. Um and how does this fit into that? Well, the two genres that Italians that might have begun as kind of imitative, but, the, but that the Italian exploitation world really made their own were the giallo, which originated in sort of the Italian rejiggering of the American thriller and film noir um, murder mystery sort of story, and the cannibal film. Which the first one is uh acknowledged as being um Umberto Lenzi's man from Deep River, I think. What Deep River Savages. Been? I don't know. I didn't I didn't I didn't make a contextual note to this time, but it's early seventies. Pre- predecessor to this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Predecessor to this. It's um I mean I can look it up right now. Um it was a quasi remake of a, of an american western so it still has um its roots in the um in the adapting in the let's just say ripping off to be <laughs> yeah. polite of uh, of of westerns you know of american uh forms but it very quickly took on a life of its own 1973 deep river savages um I'm sorry, 1972, Deep River Savages and Berto Lenzi, starring Ivan Rasimov, who I believe was in this movie also. Um, it was all the same actors. They were all, you know, like, dabbled in porn.
1: I, thought, I, knew the, I had read that the one lead actor had done most of his work in porn. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the film crew really... Like I said, the film... And maybe it was the production style that made their acting a little more forgivable. But the film crew footage was... Much better acting, I thought, than the -hmm. professor, the outside story, the the framework story, Um, the professor, the studio execs. That's where the heavy handed kind of um, transparent acting came into play. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think it probably has more to do with sort of montage and what you expect to be seeing, Um, you know, acting naturalistic acting is harder to pull off, uh, in a, in a found footage context. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think that a lot of it has to do with you're expecting to see, you're expecting to see the flaws in the acting. So you are a little more forgiving of them. I think you you're know? right. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, whereas well, in a conventional film, it's like, oh, like you're comparing this guy to De Niro or, right. or whatever.
1: Well, there's also the reality that that during that documentary footage part, um, that so much of it was focused on things other than the characters themselves. Right. That there was so much else going on that you didn't spend as much intense time singularly looking at their acting chops. Right. And um, while well, obviously in the outside story it was just – Another slightly weakly, weakly acted um, '70s film. Yeah, you know.
0: So, uh, all right. So Deodato, like I said, cut his teeth with uh, Antonioni. Um, he started making his own films. The cannibal genre began in '72 with a man from Deep River, um, essentially a ripoff of the western called A Man Called Horse, uh, the American Western, um, and. In uh seventy seven, Deodato makes a cannibal film that was called Jungle Holocaust, where you you see a lot of the themes that happen in Cannibal Holocaust um starting to be laid out. But that's it's not a found footage, it's a conventionally shot film. In the middle there, Lindsay makes another one called uh Cannibal Ferox, which is sort of sort of looked at as the second tier of cannibal films. Um, but really, Cannibal Holocaust in 1980 was stylistically and conceptually a quantum leap forward. Really, um, kind of came out of nowhere. So when you when you position it in that context, it's 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 very you know it's horror it's horror pedigree and its horror credentials are clear when you see you know the progression of the cannibal film. I mean, clearly it is gore the cannibal films that came before had a little gore for gore's sake about them um throw this these these sort of forbidden images on the screen and entice people that way the essence of you know what exploitation film is uh like you said this one does have a a social message which is like you said it is valid it is a little simplistic, though. Mm-hmm. It basically comes down to who are the real savages? Oh, they even – it's
1: the <laughs> last line of the film, who right. who, who are the real cannibals, oh. which, which looking out on the streets of New York, uh-huh. once again, is all we really needed. Right. We didn't need the line. Yeah.
0: I thought what. the last line of the film was, burn it burn it all. I don't think so. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think Isn't so. Isn't that what he says? Like, right after uh, right after they get finished watching the cut footage, doesn't the oh, TV yeah, yeah. exec just pick up the phone yeah. and say, burn it?
1: Yes, but then you get one last <laughs> shot of the professor walking out of the studio, uh-huh. onto the streets, looking back out onto the streets of New York, which they had also made this, um, uh-huh. you know, um, analogy early on. Um, walking back onto the streets of New York, um, them doing lots of footage of, of the streets, and then him saying something along the lines of, I don't remember exactly what it was, but you have to think or something. um, Who are the real cannibals? Yeah. And then that's the last line of the
0: film. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Who are the real savages? Which is a valid, a valid question to ask again, kind of simplistic, but actually
1: could have been less simplistic if they just had it put it so out front, right? Like right, if it yeah. just stayed out of the dialogue, yeah, yeah. It, the, the message was pre- very strongly there through the imagery. Yeah.
0: I think that's one of those, like we've talked about before, are you saying with words, what you either have already said with images right. or could be saying? with
1: and, images? And they did it so successfully with images. Cause uh-huh. in the beginning, simplistic premise or not all the shots of New York, um, montage together. And, um, and very much gives you that sense of, of the madness of humanity. Yeah. And, um, which is, which is, you know, a very fair premise to explore and and can take can go from simplistic to actually pretty involved if if they had cared to do so and at times i think they kind of did actually Um, but then once again reeling it back in with the heavy-handed kind of dialogue driven message
0: and so let's let's talk more about that let's get a little more maybe a little more philosophical about the themes of this film so there is an undercurrent in italian cinema not just exploitation cinema, but I think it really comes out very strongly in in the, in the exploitation side of things. The Italians, for some reason, and I don't want to be stereotyping or making blanket statements or whatever, but there is a really mean streak in a lot of Italian films. There's... Um, rape. <laughs> there's all kinds of rape all over Italians. Even uh even Lestrada, which we talked about uh last time, there's this really undercurrent of sexual violence, not as explicit as in this obviously, but I mean, you know, the, the attitude of the male lead toward the female lead, there's always this 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 lingering threat of sexual violence happening.
1: Which is interesting because I mean obviously everything always reflective of its cultural um mm-hmm. um origins. Um that That I think within Italian culture that being relatively patriarchal historically mm-hmm. that that progressive minded filmmakers are people wanting to tackle modern social issues versus um, um, the past cultural um, tendencies um, i I think that would be absolutely be a subject matter that Italian filmmakers would be interested in tackling, yeah because like I said traditionally, I think they have been relatively patriarchal right um, and then obviously being a very progressive society. Uh, moving on forward, like all of us, um, like all societies, as they move forward, you start seeing some of the places that, you know, perhaps it's time to evolve beyond or grow beyond. Right. Um,
0: and so if you put this in the context of the so-called savage cinema that grew out of the late 60s, early 70s, um, you know, Bonnie and Clyde to Sam Peck and Pa to, uh, you know, like Wes Craven. I mean, Wes Craven depicted rape. And torture in Last House on the Left in 72, but this is an entirely different level of that i mean the rape is brutal the torture is unspeakably savage and this is what the white people are doing to the indigenous people in the amazon don't get it twisted like the worst crimes perpetrated are by the europeans against the natives and not the other way around right um and it builds which i
1: thought was one of the brilliant things of the film that As you're being taken through the story of the anthropologist tracking down this documentary film crew that has a very skewed ethical approach to documentary filmmaking, Mm -hmm. at the beginning... Your empathies are naturally drawn towards the film crew. Right. You're supposed to relate to them. You're supposed to feel for them going out into these primal lands, taking on this great adventure for the sake of documentary and filmmaking. And little by little, it allows you to see where their ethics are skewed. Uh-huh. And then at about the midpoint, it really just surges forward as yeah, you start seeing. There's that one their
0: moment footage. when you start seeing the other side of because there's the village that gets burned and then there's the woman that ends up impaled. Right. And you start seeing. That essentially it's this film crew that caused all of that to happen like you had this growing understanding that they were assholes but then there's that one moment when you yeah. realize oh no these are the worst fucking people right.
1: absolutely <laughs> on so you, the planet. so you go from saying hey these guys are assholes with skewed ethics in documentary filmmaking that were still victims to basically being like these guys are european tyrants going in um almost um slave owner style yes. um with an entitlement and a um i mean to the point that they call the 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 um the tribesmen, um, monkeys. Um, they, um, you see them, the, the film crew, these are well civilized, well recognized documentary filmmakers from, uh, from Europe, um, (laughs) uh, freaking going over there and, um, raping one of the girls taking turns in, in front of, his girlfriend the, uh-huh. the 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 director of the documentary um yeah. they burn down a, a hut while after they've put the entire tribe in there so that they can pull back and get the footage that they want mm-hmm. pretending that another tribe had attacked them so they basically kill the people they rape them um it, it's it's horrifying yeah. it, it's horrifying and by the end you basically realize that this crew of four young attractive european filmmakers basically all four of them equally could really be looked at as pure sociopaths. Uh, yeah. Like, and
0: uh, you're rooting for them to get eaten. <laughs>
1: oh, by the end you load these people and yeah. they were the ones that originally your empathy was drawn towards. And yeah. then you realize the only person you can really um, relate to on a moral stance is the anthropologist. Yeah. And um, that, that by the end, you really want the worst things on earth to happen to this crew. Yeah. And, um, but the, the level of entitlement is really sick. And, um, and it really is very reflective of, of, the European imperialism that has been practiced over and over and over again. And yeah. I think it really kicked it home. And I yeah. think some of the shock value of it, it was very significant in expressing that. Indeed. Actually.
0: It's a very anti colonialist message coming from, you know, um, and uh, from someone inside of the culture. It is, I think, a lot of the savagery how they kicked that savagery up to the next level in the Italians uh in the Italian exploitation world probably has something to do with the fact that this is a nation that is still recovering from fascism yes you know and i mean you know a little bit you know uh a little bit to the uh to the uh southwest you still had a fascist regime in spain um up to, I think it was a mid seventies when Franco, uh, Franco's regime ended. So like, there's still, uh, you know, the seventies, Italian, um, cinema and Euro trash in general has a very complicated relationship with the developing world, with the Amazon and with Africa. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, there's just a lot of violence that I think culturally that these, these films are trying to grapple with. Um,
1: it's interesting that you brought in the fascism as because well, I forgot that they you know, kinda like German culture going through their kind of recovery, um uh-huh. um from World War Two. Um that, that yeah, that Italy went through a lot of shame in, in um kind of reinventing themselves from the fascist era. And um and I yeah, I didn't even think about the fact of, of how close to home that would have been in yeah. the seventies, eighties.
0: Right. You know. And of course, I mean, you know, there was the scramble for Africa happening all during that time too. everybody trying to colonize their little piece of Africa and in the sixties, um, you know, independence, um, in Africa and, uh, the various, um, European countries letting go of their colonies. Uh,
1: so really kind of a, pretty harsh indictment of European colonization in this film.
0: Very much so, yeah. And that comes through in all of the cannibal films, but never, never any more incisively and directly than in this one. We do have to move on in a minute, but I have two more questions to ask really quickly.
1: Please can I say one thing before I forget it? Yeah. yeah. And you hold on hold those questions. Uh Um that I just want to make it very clear that when I use the terms shock cinema, um, or when I'm discussing the imagery specifically in this film, that I am not saying that in the same ways as the past two films that Colin has brought to me. This is not a gore film. This is not a blood splatter film. This does not come across as a grade B, in-your-face, artificial blood film. Everything you see feels real. Um, Most of it is real. Um, They use non-actors. They use real tribesmen. They really were in the Amazon. They killed real animals. Um, The rape scenes were not real god forbid i hope but they sure as hell looked like it um i mean imagery that was truly masterfully disturbing um if that makes sense um the emotions that that came from it that were intense like i said just beyond disturbing and and i can think of some contemporary art films that um have been accused of shock cinema that i I have written entire papers defending um that that some of the imagery in this film was reminiscent of those films, and and once again, to where I see this this film really riding a very thin line between um, between uh, grade B exploitation, whatever you want to call it, and art cinema. Honestly, there are a lot of art cinema aspects to this film.
0: Yeah. But anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I watch it and I see like understanding the lineage of where it came f- where it came from in the context of the genre i see a pure horror film but um i mean like when you put it when you put it like that i could definitely see how it sh- straddles the line and someone who's n- if if this is the first <laughs> if, if this is the first Italian cannibal film you've ever seen. And indeed it is. <laughs> I, I, can, I can completely understand. Nor now.
1: did I even know that there was a trend of cannibal Italian yeah, films. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So my, um, my final thoughts on this. It does not escape my notice that this is the third film that I have shown Todd. And also the third film that featured cannibalism. Uh, I promise the next one I show them is not going to have any cannibalism in it. I just think it really is interesting how it's that taboo. It's that ultimate taboo, how we always equate the savagery and the limits of savagery with cannibalism. with cannibalism. And it's like it's that thing that can shock you out of your. It's that one thing that is always able to shock you out of your sort of bourgeois <laughs> comfortable existence is the idea of a person eating another person and uh
1: And the one other thing I could think of would be blatant rape. And they yeah. threw both at you. Yep.
0: Yeah. And uh and of course real animal killings. But right. that you know, that is that is very in line with although morally extremely reprehensible, very in line with the original like one of the basic ideas of filmmaking and montage is that you show somebody a real thing and then you show them a fake thing. And then when you, when they see the fake thing, it still has the weight of the real thing they just saw.
1: And that's what I'm referencing. When I say masterful, I'm not in any way offering any, um, condonement to how he went about the production.
0: Fair enough. So, um, and I will (laughs) steal because I love what was said on, uh, A long time ago by Mr. Mike Chizek on one of my other favorite horror podcasts, Night of the Living Podcast, where he said the next time that somebody tells you how horror films or violent films desensitize you to violence you tell them about the time you watched cannibal holocaust
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: and let me assure you you are not desensitized <laughs> not at you all. are disturbed by every inch of it and by the end you are no less disturbed than you were when it first started <laughs>
2: exactly um, so and it,
1: you... <laughs> actually masterful build it really is a masterful build because they disturb you more and more and more and more they they really roll out the carpet um I want to read a quote, of, and and yes, I am stealing this from Wikipedia. Sorry, um, but this this was a quote uh, critical reception um, to the film when it came out, and I I thought this it, it just struck me as, as being a pretty uh, pretty relevant. Um, so, what is it? Uh, Slant Magazine's Eric Henderson said. It is artful enough to demand serious critical consideration, yet foul enough to christen you a pervert for even bothering. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I thought that was pretty brilliant, especially seeing as my first response was, this really deserves artful consideration. (laughs)
0: But I feel really uncomfortable doing it. Um, Well, it's a vile film, no question about that. But in all of its vileness... Did it manage to raise your brow or lower your brow? We'll twist this on you. (laughs) What do you think? Um, I think that you're ashamed to really admit how much you liked it. Actually,
1: oddly, there may be some elements of shame, but I think I've covered them with my infinite apologies. Um, (laughs) but, um, no, I raised my brow about 10 times over, actually. <laughs> awesome. Um Like, absolutely fascinating production. Um, imagery that blew my mind. Um, certain aspects that were so freaking artfully done, so valid. Um, I, I, I really was almost confused by by the duality of exploitation, some of the low-end acting meets some of the really, really, Flawless filmmaking um, Then once again the soundtrack um, There were just so many things Done exceptionally well And in the long run once again back down what, How much emotion was evoked um, And was the intent Successfully accomplished I was cringing by the end. I I was so uncomfortable in my seat. It hurt. And yet I could not quit watching. Mm -hmm. And, um, there were scenes I had to look away from. There were scenes I had to cringe and then, but forcefully look back to, and, um, wow. Yeah. One hell of a film. Um, I I feel once again, like that quote, I feel guilty (laughs) saying this is a film that should be watched. Um, but, but without a doubt, um, intense effect on me so glad i watched it like a film that i could truly say i love what they did there and i want to pull that out uh-huh. and think about yeah. it and look at it and then yeah. so smart the, the narrative structure was so smart i think they were the first ones to do a film within a film
0: quite like that yes yes um, that is that's a big part i mean there's so much more we can talk about right. with this we do have to cut it we off do have to move but on. but yes um blair witch project last broadcast Ghost Watch, Cloverfield, none of that shit would exist without Cannibal Holocaust. Right, I was going to bring it was up was the those first. Same ones.
1: Yep, and and so overall, of all the films that have been brought to me, this is the one that I said, "Shit, I would not have been surprised to have stumbled across this in film school." Uh-huh. And I would, yeah, absolutely thankful that I watched this film. There you go. And um, and you usually ask me if I would watch it again. Um, And oddly enough, I think I've even said no to the last one, which um, I really liked, Uh um, or or maybe to the last one that I really liked for entertainment's sake. Um, This one being the one that I really should say, no, I don't ever want to watch it again. (laughs) And maybe this makes me just a sick bastard, but this is the one that, yes, I would absolutely watch again because I want to analyze it more.
0: Yeah, here's a question, and oh man, we really do have to move on, But, (laughs) but... know how you're going to answer this question when you do watch it again there is a version available that has the animal killings cut out interesting if you were to watch it again would you endure those animal killings again for the sake of the gestalt and the entire artistic vision respecting what was done or would you watch it without it
1: now would I even be able to respect myself if I said I was going to watch the toned down version um no I would not I would absolutely watch the full version again wow um if that makes me a bad human being I apologize um I'm kidding I I don't in any way feel like um I don't feel any (laughs) guilt over that um it's a film that was already made um the practices were already done I um I lend it none of my approval um from that perspective and at the same time it is imagery that exists, and I am here to analyze imagery
0: mm. fair so. enough um <laughs> cannibal holocaust in all of its full unclut unclut <laughs> cannibal holocaust in all of its full unclut <laughs> cannibal holocaust in all. <laughs>
1: it's full uncut glory
0: (laughs) gets a high brow high high brow
2: (laughs) john i want this material
3: I wonder who the real cannibals
0: are. Okay. Next up, we have... the 1959... Les Quatre-Sons Coups... by François Truffaut... also known To non-francophones as the 400 blows so this film uh concerns a young boy named antoine um i don't think they ever specify how old he is but i think he's about like 10 or 11 preteen yeah yeah, Yeah. preteen 10 11 maybe 12 um who lives in uh what i presume is is uh paris um, it is. Yeah, he is, you'll have to bear with me cause it was about a month and a half ago that I watched this, uh, <laughs> and I haven't gone back to it, unfortunately. Um, but I still have pretty good memories of it. So Antoine is, uh, his home life is pretty boring. Um, his father's kind of sort of not really there he cares he seems to care more about his automobile racing uh hobby than he does about um his his kid uh his mom is kind of a demanding um sort of shrewish woman doesn't really pay a ton of attention to him except when he doesn't do his chores um his school is extremely boring, <laughs> and I think Truffaut goes to great lengths to emphasize how boring and awful it is to be a student at this school. Um, the The teachers, uh, particularly the French teacher, is kind of an asshole. Um, and uh, there's really not much... that That is very much fun in his life. Um, he has a little friend. I forget the friend's name. I will call him uh, I uh his name also. I'll call him Pierre. <laughs>
1: it's been a month and a half for you, twelve years for me.
0: <laughs> I'll call a decade and a half for you. Yeah. Uh, I'll call him Pierre. Um I could look up his, his friend's name, but I I'm not probably, gonna bother. Yeah. Uh so his friend one day encourages him to play hooky. Says, hey, let's go play hooky. Um they go run around, they go to the carnival. they go on the uh, cyclic on the on the gravitron the one that the, you know, the carnival ride that spins around and it pins you to the wall of the thing and you kind of feel like you 're floating, which was a really really a visually really inventive and cool uh, scene and sort of kind of emphasized this sort of chaotic whirling nature of the world that this kid lives in and he doesn't really know how to handle it he's getting pinned against the wall by by forces beyond his control um which was a part of the movie that made me go oh this is this is cool i like the visual language of this film um So the best friend's name is Renee, Renee. (laughs) So Renee, um, while they are playing hooky, um, Antoine, uh, sees his mother on the streets of Paris, standing on a street corner with a man who is not his father. And they are clearly engaged in some, uh, some, uh, kind of mild, uh, but still very definite uh, PDA. Um, Antoine sees his mom. His mom sees him see her. He sees his mom see him see her. So she can't say that he played hooky because it will reveal that she was with another man, and he can't say that he saw a mom with another man because it will reveal that he was playing hooky. Um, So... He goes back to school. <laughs> the teacher asks him where he was, why he why he didn't come to school the other day, and Antoine says, "Oh, because my mother died." <laughs> this is very quickly very quickly revealed to be a lie, and Antoine gets in a lot of trouble. Um but in some ways his
1: mother did die to him that day.
0: Oh wow. Right. Yeah. And there is a nice little line of dialogue afterwards where the mom says, uh says to the dad, Well why did he why did he kill me and not you? Um, yes. Which which I thought was interesting. Very poetic. Yeah, it is. Uh so he gets in a lot of trouble, but then he decides He sort of decides he's going to get really serious about his schoolwork. He decides he's going to turn himself around, make his parents proud of him, make his teachers happy and really do what he's supposed to do. He starts getting spiritual. He starts lighting candles and he gets really, um, really fascinated with the author Honoré de Balzac. Um, And he is going to write a paper about Balzac and he is going to uh, redeem himself academically in the eyes of his teachers and his parents and everything. He partially, because this is my interpretation of the neglect that he's been subjected to doesn't have quite the understanding of what plagiarism is. So he plagiarizes Balzac in his paper and Is uh, punished for it severely. At which point, he runs away from home. He says, Fuck you, mom and dad. He says, Fuck you, school. Runs away from home and starts living in a warehouse uh, that his friends family owns it wasn't exactly clear at this point this was and i'll i'll be honest and i'll i'll reveal some of what's going to come later this was kind of the point at which i sort of started lose interest in the film (laughs) um and oh uh, no so he's living he's living on the streets he steals a typewriter tries to sell it gets caught and um that that is when his parents uh, catch back up with him, find out where he is, and uh, consequences um, ensue from there.
4: Pourquoi tu rapporté
5: la machine?
4: Oh, bah parce que comme je pouvais pas la vendre comme je pouvais rien en faire, moi j'ai eu peur, et il a fait... Je sais pas, je l'ai rapporté Je sais pas pourquoi, comme ça. Dis-moi, il paraît que tu as volé dix mille francs à ta grand-mère. Elle m'avait invité. C'était le jour de son anniversaire. Et puis alors, euh, comme elle est vieille, elle ne mange pas beaucoup, et puis elle, elle garde tout son argent, elle n'en aurait pas eu besoin, elle allait bientôt mourir. Alors, euh, comme je connaissais sa planque, j'étais lui faucher des ronds, quoi. Je savais bien qu'elle ne s'en apercevrait pas. La preuve, c'est qu'elle ne s'en est pas aperçue. Elle m'avait offert à... un beau bouquin ce jour-là. Alors, euh, ma mère, elle avait l'habitude de fouiller dans mes poches. Et le soir, j'avais mis mon pantalon sur mon lit, elle est sans doute venue, puis elle a fauché les ronds parce que le lendemain, je ne sais plus trouver. Puis elle m'en a parlé, alors j'étais bien forcée d'avouer que je l'avais pris à ma grand-mère. Alors à ce moment-là, elle m'a confisqué le beau livre que ma grand-mère m'avait donné. Puis un jour, j'ai demandé parce que je voulais le lire. Et je me suis aperçue qu'elle l'avait rendu.
1: This is um, I have to admit that this is a film I haven't seen in 10, 12 years. Um, However, when I first watched it, it was one that had um, a massive impact on me. Um, I'm also relatively certain it's the first of the French New Wave that I watched. I'm pretty sure I saw this before Breathless or any of the other really quintessential standards. Um, I immediately was more drawn to Truffaut than I was to the early work of, say, Godard. Um, Goddard seemed a little frivolous to me. Um, for Breathless seemed a little frivolous to me when I first saw it, where 400 Blows seemed extremely intimate and personal um, and and really delving at what I had hoped um, or at w- what I had always viewed the new wave as being a kickoff to, um, which is a more honest cinema. Um, and um, so with that being said, that the French new wave, um, I'm, I'm sure most people are at least slightly familiar with, of all the new waves, it's the one that that has more pop recognition, um, that, um, that it certainly was a kickoff to a new cinema. It was a, the, it was a young group of filmmakers slash film critics um, led by, I believe it's Andre Bazin, 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 Bazin. I forget how to say his name. But, Bazin. 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 Uh, but, um, but he was a well-known critic who kind of took Truffaut under his wing. Um, Trufo of all of the filmmakers of the new wave was the one who really had lived life, um, was not raised a trust fund kid, was not raised with great privilege um, and a lot of 400 Blows is, is very true to his life actually um, so with all of that I was immediately drawn to him in the same way that I was drawn to early Scorsese and the 70s uh, American New Wave, um, that he seemed like the one of the bunch that was really trying to get down to something honest about himself and to really discover something about himself through his filmmaking. Um, With that being said, uh, stylistically, he uh, stays very true to what we typically associate with the French uh, new wave cinema, location shooting, uh, the use of um, non-actors, a level of realism on film that that up until that point certainly was not the standard, certainly not in American Hollywood cinema um, or in classic Hollywood cinema. And so this was a young group of film critics that started a journal, a film journal, called Cahir du Cinema. Still exists today. Very, very renowned. Um, very snooty. They still will not—I um, think this is still true—will not put out a translation into English. It's still only in French, I do believe. Um, but it is still considered one of the leading film journals in the world. They did not— um, Critique films as as the standard American critics did, um, so they all became basically the first kind of students of film before film schools were really um, really hopping yet, and um, and kind of amongst themselves became this clan of of uh, well pretentious and snooty um, um, standard setters for what was quality cinema. Um, they had a handful. They very much dif- well they coined the term auteur, Um the auteurist theory is theirs. Um, it still exists today. As it's the, pretty much the standard theory on filmmaking is that the director is the author of a film. Um, and so many of these things that, that were innovations of their critical circle. Um, now, as they gained more recognition... They um, moved on, most of them moved on into filmmaking. As far as I know, Bazin never did. I know I'm saying his name wrong. Um, but Truffaut, Goddard, and a handful of the others went on and actually became filmmakers and basically said, okay, all this pretentious critique that we're doing, now it's time for us to go out and show you what we're talking about. Now it's time for us to do it. Most of them had very limited means when they did this. But enormous amounts of cinematic innovation came out of this that has been spread across um, world cinema. Um, I don't think there is a single cinema in the world, including Asian cinemas, African cinemas and beyond that are not familiar with, um, French new wave. I don't think there's a single seventies American filmmaker along the lines of a Scorsese or a Coppola or any of the ones that really transformed, um, American cinema during the seventies that wouldn't say new wave was a massive influence on them. Um, with that being said, Truffaut being one of the two, three leading names of that movement. Um, the filmmakers that they looked up to, that they considered auteurs, were ones along the lines of um, Brisson, um, um, Antonioni, uh, Fellini. There were only a handful of filmmakers before them that they truly believed were auteurs. I believe they added Hitchcock in later, they, um, a few American filmmakers. Um, so they really believed that an auteur was a high... Um, um, a high level status as a filmmaker. And that's what they um, aspired to be. And that's what Truffaut aspired to be. Um, The last thing I'll say is that the 400 Blows, probably the greatest critical reception that Truffaut ever received in his life. And it was his first film. Um, It had a great response at Cannes. Uh, I believe it was um, nominated for the Palme d'Or, I believe. And it, it won a handful of awards. So he got immediate notoriety within... Um, French cinema um, for this film Um, and then went on to have a very full career as a critic and a filmmaker, but never, almost Spike Lee-esque, never quite reaching the same critical acclaim that he got early in his career and even delved into things that were a little more mainstream as opposed to a Godard who kept going further and further into the experimental. Truffaut at times actually did kind of wean towards things that were a little more digestible and accessible later in his career. And I think that's a bit of context. So, uh, Mr. Cullen, uh, what did you uh think about the four hundred blows? I,
0: I did not like this film. <laughs> i'm
2: sorry
1: i honestly I'd already kind of <laughs> caught on to it from brief conversations
0: <laughs> i'm sorry i I felt like I understood what was going on what was the attempt what was being attempted to be conveyed um it just didn't speak to me. I don't know. The first 20, 30 minutes, I was pretty engaged. But then I think, like I said, around the part where he runs away, um, I just started not caring. <laughs> there's something. Understood. There's There's something. I think like we were talking about with Bresson, the acting is kind of unemotive and very subdued. Mm-hmm. The, the cinematography, I thought, was very flat a lot of the photography was, and I guess naturalistic. Um, I wasn't engaged. Um, it didn't, it, 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 you know, the film got my attention at certain points, but it lost me again. And, um, I really, I tried to summon, I related, you know, to some of what the boy was going through. Um, I didn't have an upbringing quite like that. Maybe that's part of the reason I found it hard to relate to fully. Um, but I was really trying to make myself care about what this kid was going through. And I just sort of, I don't know, I just kind of didn't. And then by the end, it seems very anticlimactic. And uh, I don't know. I, I It was not my cup of tea. I think
1: um, you have some really valid notes there, just like you did on Bresson, um, that, that touch on um, some critical, um, um, or whatever, some critique that, that, that he typically has received for this film. Um. Obviously, this film was very well received. It's considered, like, sight and sound, voted it one of the top 50 greatest films of all time and all that. But none of that means anything, that if a mode of production doesn't relate to you, it doesn't relate to you, period. Um, And it's no statement on necessarily quality of film or anything else. Um, And what I find really interesting, it's kind of the same with Persona. First of all, I love your honesty about it, as far as where you do find things, but then what your overall take is. But where the mode of production honestly... It's a mode of production that does not naturally appeal to you um, very much like uh, Blood feasts and some of the exploitation films that are for the sake of exploitation are, are excessively challenging for me. And sometimes it's hard to get past the mode of production to get down to what maybe would be enjoyable to me. And um, I think as I watch more of these that, that it becomes easier for me to do so. The film you gave me this week touched on a lot of very natural intrigues of mine, um, sadly, <laughs> and, um, to say, to admit. But um, but with the 400 Blows and with Pickpocket by Bresson, I, I totally get understanding what your cinematic um, language is, like why they would seem subdued, why they would seem um, even boring at times, um, flat. Um, I, I felt like the cinematography, from my best memory, that the cinematography wasn't flat as much as it was bleak. Um, myself um I, I thought it was interesting photography
2: uh-huh.
1: um, but um but once again it's been quite a while since i've seen this film and really intended to watch it again before the podcast That's uh, fine. apologies <laughs> um but um but what i did love what i personally took from it is, is i didn't mind the slowness of it because i did get drawn into the poetry of it i got drawn into the pacing of it and i did very much find myself connected to the young boy um i also very much appreciated the, Truffaut's attempt at such um autobiographical honesty um, or to try to tackle some of the things or some of the demons of his past um, um, through an artful form that wasn't completely self-indulgent. Um, so, so for me, I, I feel like it very much deserves its place in the canon of art cinema um, I'm, I'm actually anxious to uh, watch it again now um, and, and kind of see how, what my take is on it now um, after hearing Colin's take on it. Um, but but at the same time, what's really fun to me is that I'm starting to figure out which films appeal to Colin and which ones <laughs> don't because Fellini was an immediate uh, attraction. Like Colin took to Fellini immediately, and it seemed yeah. like he was quite intrigued all the way through. Uh, no moments of pause. It was just he enjoyed it, kind of like yeah. the same with me and Cannibal um, Holocaust today. they for some They're reason basically there was a the same t- film. <laughs> <laughs> There was there was a natural tendency um, or natural tendencies that really drew me to it. it. It wasn't I didn't have to try to like it or to, or to try to relate to it or, or or find things to be intrigued by. I guess would be a better way to say yeah. Um, and I felt like that was what Fellini was for you to where as opposed to Bresson and Fortner Blows, which come very much from the same cinematic language, um, one feeding off the other. If anything, Truffaut probably trying to replicate Bresson as much as he was trying to replicate anybody. Yeah. Um, that that it makes sense to me that 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 would be. Um, um, I don't know. Less less natural, a less natural appeal to mm-hmm.
0: you. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because uh, you know p- the pickpocket was the first film that you had me watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, like you, like you said earlier before we started recording, this came out the same year mm-hmm. as the pickpocket. Um,
1: so what's the young french maker film filmmaker uh, French filmmaker, the older film French filmmaker um yeah, and the films that they put out in the same year, but very much coming from the same understanding of cinema yeah
0: and i mean i there were things about the pickpocket that made it difficult for me to engage with, but um I watched that film what like four months ago now. Mm-hmm. And there are still things in it that I really remember and resonate very strongly. There are things about it that stuck with me. This film I watched a month and a half ago and have much less memory of. And that says a lot. That's another one of
1: my kind of things is that um, if I finish a film and, um, and regardless of my immediate response, that if a month later it's still creeping into my head, yeah, um, yeah. I have to – say give it some extra credit uh-huh. um and um and if it's not then i have to kind of say oh, I enjoyed it at the moment, or I thought this, but maybe not as an intensive an effect on me as I, as I thought. And I would say if a month and a half later it's not creeping into your brain, you're absolutely right. Well, yeah. The Pickpocket still is.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: I fucking, I watched Lars von Trier's Antichrist ah. over half a year ago, and that film is still fucking with my head. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's been that's been the better part of a year since that I watched that. That bastard. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah. We so, can't
1: talk about Von Trier. That's a no. That's a conversation unto
0: itself. Yeah, good and bad. Uh, he he probably straddles the line.
1: I do want to of say your world I, and mine. I, I, I want to throw this out there so that Colin can cut it out. And I do think von Trier very much straddles the line between Colin's world and my world. Uh-huh. Is that um, I wish him all the luck in his sobriety and um, and hope that we get to see um, what film he would make um, without um, being under the influence one day.
0: <laughs> one day. Um, yes, this film it. I could tell, having watched Bresson, having watched Pickpocket, I could tell that this was part of the same, uh, you know, of, of the same universe of film. It was the same type of film. It was attempting to do a lot of the same things. And um, I don't know. There was just... I wish I had... I wish I had like a, a bullet point list of things that turned me off about this film. Um the acting was fine. The writing was fine. It was everything was well executed. Um the the cinematography was a little bleak, like you say. I will I will withdraw my flat and I will put bleak in there. But like I like bleak. And the film was very. I mean, this film was slow.
1: That's what I was about <laughs> to say.
0: But I like slow too. Like I
1: a certain d- kind of slow. But this is one of those slow films that doesn't really make an attempt to pull you back in. Right. It really yeah. just stays at that pace.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, um. So, but I mean, like everything about it that I, everything about it that I'm giving as a reason why I didn't like it. The, It could be in another film, I could be giving those as reasons why I did like it. Absolutely. You know? Um, And I I just don't know.
1: I think that's Uh. valid. And I also think it's very interesting to, to note that this was a young film critic with no filmmaking chops. I keep saying chops today. Why do I keep doing that? But, um, but who had never really um, delved into the world of film production. He was a film critic from the outside who basically was saying, what is the ideal film that I want to make or that I would like to see made? And then jumps in and tries to make it. Um, as opposed to, say, with Pickpocket or Bresson, who is a true master of cinema making his fourth or fifth film. Um, quite a difference there um, to where... I think it would make sense to say that this one was a little bit more preconceived, a little less naturalistic, a little bit more formulated um, in certain ways. Um, that and 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 possibly not as not as well executed. Possibly, you know. Um, I think he knew exactly what he wanted to do, and then I think there's room for debate on where he succeeded and where he didn't. With that being said, um, once again, I, I stand behind the fact that the innovation and and um, and some of the things that that were offered to the to the language of cinema through this film um keep it um very validly um getting um the reception that it gets um that i stand behind that but um but i also have no problems understanding your response to it um and 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 yeah it makes sense it makes complete
0: sense i will admit that i was prepared to I I gave this film a fair a f- a fair viewing and a fair shot like I give everything. I was a bit prepared to not like it, and I will tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because because Truffaut idolized Hitchcock. Right. Um, he wrote a very famous book as a critic in his capacity as a critic um, about Hitchcock, called I think simply Truffaut Hitchcock. Um, which I have not read, but the book was taken. It was a um, adapted is not the right word. It was a it was condensed in written form from a series of interviews that uh, Truffaut conducted with Hitchcock through an interpreter because Truffaut did not speak English and Hitchcock spoke very bad French, um, and those interviews were were uh were taped they were recorded and i have listened to those recordings um i stumbled upon them on the internet you know like they're out there easily available anyone can anyone who, who you know who wants to seek them out can it's really interesting um truffo comes off like a total pretentious fuckwad the,
1: that that <laughs> that Is what Truffaut is. (laughs) (laughs) However, I do think there's a very honest man underneath it.
0: Okay, Uh, that's fair enough. But I listen to these interviews. There's
1: there's a lot of pretentious (laughs) fuckwads that I think the world of their art.
0: Sure, sure, okay, that's fine. I listen. All I can say is I listen to these interviews because I'm a total Hitchcock nut. I listened to these interviews uh, several years ago, and just marveled at how incredibly, uh, what a douchebag this guy sounded well, if like. If you
1: look at the entire movement of the new wave Cahier du Cinema uh-huh. and, and the entire nature of what they were doing, the one word that would define it best and most appropriately would be pretentious. Um, I mean, <laughs> uh-huh. they were basically saying there are only four good filmmakers that ever existed. Um, and now we're going to be the next two or three. And uh, I mean, uh-huh. that was their basic attitude was that we are the Lord and God over what is good cinema and what is not. And it's a very, very small window that is good cinema. Um, And so, yeah, that was their general attitude. Um, I can relate in terms of, as a 20 something striving um, artist, musician, filmmaker, that I I feel like I probably had some of those same pretensions that I've Uh grown out of to some degree, um, to where I felt like my judgment certainly held more. more more uh rank than it should. Um and I and I just think Truffaut and the and the boys of the new wave movement never quite broke from that. Um Godard as well. Um, even his even Godard's filmmaking reeks of pretension. Um but I also yeah. still think it's masterful.
0: Well, I mean, and I guess this goes back to like, you know, that eternal question of to what degree are you prepared to separate the artist from the art? Right. Um I will say that There are plenty of artists whose work I admire greatly who are pretentious. Um, I will further say that if I am already disinclined to like your art, um, you being a douchebag is really not going (laughs) to (laughs) help. It's going to hurt completely. I, I, I am, I am, I am more willing to, um, I'm more willing to forgive douchebaggery on the part of someone whose art I like than I am to ignore douchebaggery on the part of someone who on, on 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 the part of someone whose art I already dislike.
1: Absolutely, and actually, I'll double up on that exact same notion. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and and douchebaggery and pretension are two of the things to most quickly uh, push me away from an artist or a filmmaker as well. Uh-huh. So so I feel you fully there. Um, once again. Uh, Truffaut is synonymous um within the canon of of uh cinematic uh evolution in in a way that, that I I can't not give him his due. I just can't. Um and, and a lot of that probably has to do with my schooling as much as anything, which is not mm-hmm. a valid reason to feel that way. But it's just yeah, one of those things. Um but Fair however, enough.
0: yeah. Fair enough. Uh, so the the sequence with the carnival ride was really, really interesting. There were a few other sequences. The um the the theft of the typewriter yes. was a really well orchestrated scene that reminded me of Brisson had had shades of the hip, of of the hip pocket <laughs> the hip pocket exactly <laughs> the hot pocket
1: and the new brooklyn version of pickpocket <laughs> the remake of pickpocket by <laughs> the pic- by harmony
2: Corrine. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: there were things the i think the best sequences in this film were really interesting um, really good there weren't there wasn't enough of that stuff To outweigh the tedium and the disinterest that I felt. Um, Francois, the entirety of the Cahiers du Cinema and the French New Wave, I send my apologies.
1: No apologies, necessary. They don't give a fuck. (laughs)
0: they just yeah i'm just another i yeah i'm just reinforcing what they feel about american audiences already right
1: they're already better than us they don't care
0: (laughs) well anyway because i'm not uh or try really hard not to be a pretentious douchebag i do still send my apologies but i send them along with a lowered brow. Aww, uh, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> there just wasn't enough of the good stuff to outweigh the boring stuff. Very valid. Very valid. <laughs> I'm brow. I'm glad you like
1: it. And, uh, and I will go ahead and say, uh, yeah, I still throw a nice little salute to you, Francois. Uh, I, got a, I got a little love for you, pretentious or not.
0: All right. Fair <laughs> I, enough. I'll hold you tight, my douchebag. You, sir... <laughs> Are no Hitchcock. <laughs> I knew
1: Hitchcock. I worked with Hitchcock. And you, sir, are no Hitchcock. And you know, I do have to say, Francois, you're no Brisson either, but you really tried hard.
3: A for effort. A for effort. I mean, that was the action. I'm not, I'm not asking how it was shot.
5: Yes. I'm asking from a
3: story point of view. What was the
5: intention? l'intention c'était de montrer que les deux s'étaient vus l'un l'autre. It was to show that both of them had seen each other. I see. In other words, other both words. Of them in an abnormal situation because the child was seeing his mother with another man on the street the mother didn't want to be seen on the street with another man by a child. Because neither one nor the other could speak about it afterwards.
3: Well, I realize that, but in other words, the boy saw his mother
5: and
3: the mother was aware
5: la mère a été consciente.
3: That the boy had discovered her with another man.
5: le garçon l'avait découvert avec un autre homme.
3: Is that the scene? Uh, did the boy have to know that his mother had seen him?
5: Est-ce qu'il était nécessaire que le garçon sache que sa mère l'avait vu?
3: Non, il ne doit pas savoir.
5: Il n'est no, pas he, sûr. No, it's not certain. It's not, it's not ah, definite. Ah, well, that's have what I know.
3: wonder. C'est ça que je you savoir. see, I'm wondering whether the sûrement. extra shouldn't have been.
5: L'extra L'extra the mother l'idée.
3: is aware that the boy has seen her with another
5: man. Oui, elle elle dit. Je suis sûr qu'il m'a vu. Yes, she says to <laughs> the man, I'm sure he saw me. Why
3: does she, I mean I would have hoped that, she, that 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 there was nothing spoken.
0: All right, well uh, that about wraps it up for today. Um, I would like to announce that the next film I am assigning Mr. Todd is uh, a film that I know he's heard of because I've discussed it with him before. Um, Nineteen eighty-eight. Film by the American director Frank Hennenlotter, known as Brain Damage.
1: I'm excited already. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Brain damage? Yeah. Sounds like that might have some uh, personal notes for me as well. <laughs> um, and for Colin next week, um, I'm bringing him into the modern era oh. of art cinema. The dardenne brothers, um, very, very personal favorites of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, are
0: you sure it's not Dardin? Dardin.
1: Dardin. 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 Yeah. They're, they're from one of those Norwegian countries. Oh, it's, they're not okay. even it's French. Not no, okay. they, they're, I can't even remember. But, um, but they're, they're typically adopted as French filmmakers because they win the Palme d'Or every single time they make the, a film. Oh. Uh, but, um, not every time, but they are loved by Khan. Um But The Sun uh by the Dardeen brothers. And I am absolutely beyond anxious to hear what Colin's take is on this because this one really knocked me off my feet. So
0: all right. Well I've already given a spoiler uh about about uh brain damage that it contains no cannibalism. <laughs> so you got that to look forward to excellent. Uh, I'm gonna miss
1: my cannibalism. Yeah.
0: We're uh so Todd's keeping me in Europe uh and rocketing me into the uh into the new era. I'm uh, keeping him in the 80s, but sending him back across the pond to the grimy uh, landscape of uh, pre-Giuliani Manhattan. Nice. And uh, until then, uh, I'm Cullen, and I'm keeping it crass.
1: I'm Todd, and I'm feeling damn artsy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. Uh, The email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. We are not affiliated with them. They do comedy. We talk about movies. Uh, They had the name first. We did not copy them. We came up with the name on our own, and we liked it too much not to use it. Sorry. Oh, well, yes, yes, <laughs> put that in at the end of that thing, or what how then uh, I <laughs> put this in before the other thing, okay, word.